I hope that every um, time that we open God's Word together, that we proclaim it and preach it, that it is it is helpful and, and meaningful to us as a church and works in our lives and molds and shapes us. I really hope that this series has had and will continue to have our attention as we are studying the truths about God that He has revealed to us. It's what we've talked about in God's attributes. It's the attributes of God are the things that God will allow us to know about Himself, that He reveals to us about Himself, and He does that for a reason. And we've said with each one of these attributes every week, like our goal is to get our mind to go as high as it can, raise our ideas about God to lofty places, but then to consider how these attributes and how these truths about God are reality to us and impact our lives. When theologians talk about attributes of God, these truths about God, they usually divide them into two categories, the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. It's a very fancy way of saying that there are certain attributes that God shares with His people, He communicates it to them. He transfers it. He shares it with them. That would be things we really haven't started looking at yet, but will next week, goodness and mercy, grace. But there are incommunicable attributes. There are those that God does not share with His people. They are His. And when we start talking about the incommunicable attributes, the one that is perhaps the most challenging to us, and I would say even the most debated among God's people, is the one that we are looking at today, the sovereignty of God. I'm going to start this morning with the premise that all of us who are believers... hold to the sovereignty of God to some degree. And the reason that I have that premise is I believe that those of us who are believers, we have, at some point in our lives, either comforted someone else, or we have been comforted ourselves with the statement, God is in control. That is a statement of sovereignty. When you look at someone else who is going through a difficult and challenging time, when they are suffering, when they have to make a decision that they don't know how to make, and you look at them and you say, but God is in control, you are expressing to them a belief in the sovereignty of God. Because that's what sovereignty is. A sovereign rules. A sovereign controls and reigns. I think the question is, the question we wrestle with, is how much control does God assume? I think the question that we wrestle with is, what areas of existence does God control? How much does He control and what areas does He control? Is it certain parts of our life? And then how much? 
Is it our extenuating or external circumstances? And how much? Is it internal issues? Does His sovereignty reach to our heart, to our faith, to our salvation? And if so, how much? Those are the questions that we wrestle with when it comes to sovereignty. My purpose today is not to try and answer all those questions or teach on them in detail. I think that would be a rather foolish proposal. John Piper, who recently finished a book that he called something along the lines of a culmination of his life work, his life's work. The book's called Providence. It's all about his views biblically on the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and exerting control over creation. And that book is 750 pages long. My goal today is not to try to answer all this question that we may have about sovereignty, but here's what my goal is. I want to make the case to you that Scripture affirms the sovereignty of God and that it does so for our comfort. That everywhere Scripture affirms that God is sovereign, that it is doing so to His people for their comfort. And I want to, along the way, address two of the most common objections that we have to the idea of sovereignty. And I want to do that in order to try and show that God's control, His sovereignty over His creation, is not challenged even by our toughest questions. So we'll take two of our toughest questions and we will try to shine some light on them to show that God's sovereignty is not challenged by those. So let's start, if you're a note taker, and you have one of our worship guides, let's start with this life truth. Part of it. Sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. That's my definition that we're going to use this morning of sovereignty. Sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy. A.W. Pink, when he wrote about the sovereignty of God, he said that the sovereignty of God means that God is God, not only in name, but in fact. That He is not just God in title, but He is God because He is on the throne. And that He does have supremacy, and He is exercising that supremacy over His creation. So it is to say that God doesn't merely exist in His attributes. Think about the things that we've looked at so far. That God is the supreme being in all the universe. Certainly we should at least expect that if there was a being who was going to rule the universe, it would be God. Because He has supremacy. God is holy. He is perfect in every attribute. God is unchanging in His nature. God has all knowledge. We talked about this one last week. There is nothing hidden from His view. Not a sparrow, not a smallest creature perishes without God's knowledge. Nothing happens in our lives without His knowledge. He knows right now the thought that will come into our mind ten years from today. He knows everything. And what we're saying when we talk about sovereignty is God doesn't just exist in those attributes. 
but He actually exerts those attributes in and over His creation. That He is exerting His supremacy, His holiness, His knowledge in and over all of His creation. That's what we mean by sovereignty. Now the question is, if that is true, which I believe the Bible affirms, if God is exercising His supremacy, to what end is He exercising it? In other words, to what goal is He trying to achieve? Because certainly, if He is putting those attributes to work, there is a reason. So what is that reason? And that's the rest of our life truth. Sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy. God does whatever is pleasing to Him according to His character and His will without any constraints. God does whatever is pleasing to Him according to or in accordance with His character and His will, and He does so without any constraints Or if you want to write on top of constraints, you could put without any restrictions or without any hindrances. In other words, there are no limitations to God's sovereignty. Now, I derive this life truth from three passages. I want to give them to you this morning and we'll talk about them. The first one is the one that Eric read, Psalm 135. And in verse 6, it clearly states, The Lord does whatever He pleases. In other words, the Lord does whatever He delights in. Whatever brings God pleasure, that is what He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the depths. The psalmist is saying, in the earth around us, in the things that we can see, and in the furthest parts of the universe that that no eye has ever glimpsed, God is doing what He pleases, what brings Him pleasure. So then the question is, well, what brings God pleasure? What does God delight in? If you make that statement about us, it's not a good statement. If someone was was to say of you or I, they just do whatever they want. Normally, that isn't an affirming statement. But with God, it is. Because God is holy, perfect, and good. Therefore, whatever God does is holy, perfect, and good. We'll probably talk about more of this next week. When we say God is good, we don't mean He's good because He does good things. What we're saying is God is good. Therefore, anything God does is good. That's how we define what is good. It's because God does it. So what does it, what pleases God? God does whatever He wants, whatever brings delight to Him. That's what He does. Well, what brings delight to God? Well, Paul in Ephesians 1.11, and let me make a note. Your handout says Ephesians 1.1. Please put another one there. Typo. It's Ephesians 1.11. Paul says this. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is Paul's statement on the sovereignty of God. He works all things according to the counsel or the purpose of His will. So if you put these things together, God is working all things according to His will. God's will be done. 
Therefore, since God does whatever He pleases, our conclusion is that it is God's pleasure to work all things toward this goal, that His will be accomplished in all the earth. That's His pleasure. It's His pleasure in the parts of creation that we can't see. It's His pleasure in our lives. That God works all things so that His will be accomplished. If you've ever been to Chick-fil-A, and since most of you are believers, I assume you have been, uh, you order from... By the way, it's a joke. If you don't like Chick-fil-A, you're... Still saved, I'm not saying you're lost. If you've ever ordered, though, at Chick-fil-A, when you get done, you'll say, thank you. And their response is, my pleasure. Now, I don't actually know if it truly was their pleasure. Some people that have worked there are shaking their head no. It's not always their pleasure. But they say that. And what they're trying to communicate to us, or to you, is that, yes, what I just did to serve you, that... That was my pleasure. It was my pleasure to do that for you. When the mature believer, when a mature Christian is able to say, thank you, God, for working your will in my life. Thank you, God, for working your will in this situation, in my marriage, in my work, in my finances, even though, God, it is not what I would have chosen in the moment, even though it is not what I had planned, God, thank you for working your will in my life, it would be God's response to say, that is my pleasure. It is my pleasure to work in creation so that my will is accomplished in your life and throughout all that I have made. So Paul's wording there in Ephesians 1.11 is that God, it is His pleasure to work all things according to His counsel. And his terminology there, all things, indicates to us that we should not assume that anything is outside of God's scope of influence. Like we would have to see in the Bible where it specifically says, except this. Because Paul's statement is, God is working all things to the counsel of His will. And that is why I ended the life truth saying that this work that God does in sovereignty, He does without constraint. He does without restriction. He does without any kind of limitation. A picture of this is from Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace and he is looking across Babylon and he is admiring all of this kingdom that he is the ruler of. And he's talking to himself and he says, Is this Babylon not great? And is this Babylon not the city that I have built by my vast power and my glory? Did I not do all of this? And the Bible says that while those words were coming from his mouth, God stopped him. And God told Nebuchadnezzar, 
I am about to make you go insane. You're going to leave your people and you're going to go graze in a field like cattle. And you are going to lose your mind until such a time that you will acknowledge that God is the ruler over all human kingdoms and He gives them to whoever He chooses. You, Nebuchadnezzar, did not do this. I did. And this, by the way, was not a godly kingdom. And so, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. And there comes a time where his sanity is returned to him. And when his sanity is returned to him, the Bible says he glorifies God. And this is his statement. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. By the way, the word dominion means rule and authority, or if you will, sovereignty. God's rule and authority, God's sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty. He does what He wants. And He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and there is no one who can block His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, that is the That's the result of what God put him through. To say, you are God. You do what pleases you. And in that case, it pleased God to show Nebuchadnezzar that God alone was the ruler of all nations and kingdoms. I said to you, I think several times in this series, that we can learn about God by thinking about what is true of Him in light of what is not true of us. Right? We said that a couple of times. So we think about our limitations, and then we understand that God doesn't have those same limitations. I can't do whatever I want. If I could do whatever I want, I would be here with you this morning, I would preach. But when we leave here, I would gather up my family, we would pack some bags, and we would go somewhere. I don't know where we'd go. We might go camping, might go to the beach, might go to the mountains. But I love to travel. I love to be places. I'd come back, be back here next Sunday. But that's what I'd do. I can't do whatever I want because I'm constrained. Number one, don't have any place to go. Number two, not in the budget. Number three, don't have any time off from work this week. So I can't do whatever I want. Even if I could do whatever I want, though... That does not mean it would be good for me to do whatever I want. Because what I delight in to do my will is not always grounded in what's good. So there might be things that I want to do, and it would be my will to do, and if I could do them, it wouldn't actually be good for me or others. None of those things are true about God. Number one, He is free to do Everything he delights in. He has all authority. He has no restrictions. There are no constraints. He can do whatever he pleases. There's no limitations. And secondly, he can do his pleasure and it's always good for him to do that. So there's no constraints on him. He doesn't bow to anything. Church, he doesn't bow to what we think is fair. 
He is not limited by what we can logically say makes sense about what He should do. He's free to do what He chooses, and anything He chooses is good. Because everything He does will be in line with His character, His goodness, His mercy, His justice. Everything God does is in line with those things. So when we take this life truth and we, we say the Bible affirms that sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy and God can do whatever He pleases according to His will and He does so without constraint. There are people who would say, well, that's, that's not right. God can't just do whatever He wills. Certainly people outside of the church would say that, but sometimes we are challenged with that inside of the church. And here is my question to us, agape. If not God, then whose will would we have done? If not His, then whose will would we say should be done? And in the deep recesses of our heart, the answer to that question is, Ours. Many times our challenge to the idea of God's sovereignty is one of us not desiring to relinquish control. Yet it is good for us to relinquish control. It truly matters not whether we relinquish it or we don't. But it is good for us to be comforted by the fact that God is in control. We might object and we might say, well, God is constrained. There are limits. And two of the most common objections to his sovereignty I want us to address this morning. And these are in your notes. These are not the only objections to the idea of God's sovereignty, but these are two of the most common. So I want us to at least shine light on them head on. Number one is evil in the world. One of the most common objections to the idea that God is sovereign and God is control is that evil exists in the world. So the objection would go this way. If God is sovereign and God is exercising His supremacy and He is doing His will, then why is there wickedness in the world? Why is there evil in the world? And that is an excellent question, and it is one that we should address. So how do we respond to this? First of all, we need to establish this truth. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. He is, it, it does not originate with Him. James 1.13, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago says, no one should ever say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone with evil. God is not the author of evil. Does evil exist? Yes. Does it originate from God? No. Evil entered creation through creatures. Creatures that God gave the ability to choose Him or reject Him to worship Him or rebel against Him. And it is those creatures and the choices that they make that is the 
source of evil, not God. So we should establish that truth, but then we must say this. Evil does exist under His allowance for now. Here's what happens sometimes. We want to establish that God is not the author of evil. It's not the source of it. But we want to further that so much that we take evil and we put it in a compartment over here by itself. And we say, God is God of light. And God is sovereign and ruling the good and the light. But over here, here is this kingdom, if you will, of darkness. And it is a powerful kingdom, and it is. And, and that they are at odds, and they are. And one day, God will rule over that totally. And so when hard things happen and evil things happen, we say, well, that's because evil exists over here and God has no control over that. The problem is that is not what the Bible says. The Bible shows us that God is sovereign over everything. Evil exists within, under His providential rain. And so if God is not the source of evil, yet evil does exist under his control, that means in your notes that God is allowing evil to exist temporarily while he uses it for his purposes and for our ultimate good. God allows evil to exist temporarily while He uses it for His purposes and for our ultimate good. There will be a day where God will destroy all rebellion, all evil. That day is not yet. And there are people who challenge God. Peter said there will be people who will challenge Him and say, look, where's the promise of His coming? Where's this whole idea that God is going to destroy evil? If He was going to do that, He would have done it by now. If he could do that, he would have done it by now. And Peter's response to that is, you are mistaking. You are mistaking inadequacy with patience. God is not inadequate to deal with evil. He is being patient. Patient with you. Patient with every person who does not yet know him, that they will have time to come to know him. Because the day God puts his proverbial foot on the throat of evil once and for all, there will be no return for those who were lost. So God allows evil to exist temporarily. It doesn't exist outside of His control. It exists within His control. It does have power, but it is a limited power. It is not an ultimate power. And even evil is part of the all things that God works according to His will. Even evil is part of what God uses to accomplish His purposes. And if you say, that is really, really, really difficult for me to grasp. Yes, it is. One of the reasons that it's so hard to grasp is you and I can't do that. You and I do not have the ability to use that which didn't originate from us, that which is evil, to accomplish good purposes. We can't do that without being overcome by the evil ourselves. But God 
is God. And when it says He works all things to the counsel of His will, it means even evil. And church, to deny that is to deny your salvation. Here is why. When Jesus was being nailed to a cross, He looked up to heaven and He said, Father, forgive them. Because they do not know what they're doing. Jesus asked that God would forgive those who were killing Him. Why would Jesus ask God to forgive them? Because what they were doing was a sin. It was evil. It was wrong. It was a crime. And it was a crime against God. Yet centuries before in Isaiah... When Isaiah looked ahead to Christ in his sufferings, Isaiah said, it will be the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord will be pleased to crush his servant for our sins. What happened to Christ on the cross was evil. Did not originate from God. Yet God used it for His purposes and our good. So much so that as Isaiah is looking at it, through the lens of prophecy centuries ahead, what Isaiah can see is that God is planning to crush His servant for the salvation of the world. When Paul would write about the gospel, he would say, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures according to those prophecies from long ago. And if you want to see all of this together, the perfect place is Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It's the perfect one-verse statement where Peter is preaching at Pentecost and he says to this large crowd of people that he's preaching to, Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There in that verse, you see the sovereignty of God using evil to accomplish His greater purpose. Not because that evil originated from Him, but because He works all things to the counsel of His will. He delivered up Jesus for our salvation. But the men who killed him were responsible for what they did. The evil was not from God, but it was used by God. That is the ultimate example. You and I can't do that, but God is able. All things means all things. The existence of evil is not a constraint against the sovereignty of God. We should not try to find ways to excuse God's sovereign control over everything, including evil. It doesn't originate from Him. He tempts no one to do evil things. He Himself is not tempted by evil. It entered the world through His rebellious creatures. But God is in control, even of evil, and He uses it.
I don't know what the worst thing that has ever happened to you at the hands of someone else is. But you do. Did that originate from God? No. Did it happen without God's knowledge? No. Will God use that for your good? Yes. That church is why the sovereignty of God should bring comfort to our lives. That He hurts with you and grieves with you and He cares about you. And that care is displayed this way. That He is able to take the worst thing and use it in such a way that your life is molded and shaped and better because of it. And there are people who would ridicule that idea and they would shake their fist at God because of it. And church, what I believe the Bible calls us to and what I would call us to is faith. Trust that God is a loving, good, holy Father. And nothing that has happened to you that is evil originated from Him. But He is able. And is even right now working all those things for His purposes in your life and your good. Evil is not an objection or a constraint to His sovereignty. It is within His sovereignty. The second objection, the most common objection, the second one is mankind's responsibility. Mankind's responsibility. If you like there, you can write mankind's choice. If you like, you can write mankind's free will. Whatever suits you best. The objection would go this way. If God is sovereign and God is exercising His supremacy and doing His will, then how do men have responsibility? How do they have a choice? And if we really don't have a choice, then how can God hold us responsible for our actions? And that is an excellent question as well, and it is one that we should respond to. So how do we respond to that? The first response is we need to make an affirmation, just like we did a moment ago. That evil doesn't come from God. We need to make an affirmation about mankind's responsibility. Here it is in your notes. God has granted to mankind a limited determination over their lives. Absolutely. God has granted to men, to mankind, a limited determination over their lives. What does that mean? It means that you and I should think about what we do. We should plan, we should make decisions, and then we will follow out the course of those decisions that we make. You have choices to make, and your choices have consequences. 
The choices that you make do have a determining impact on your life. And not only that, but the choices you make have a determining impact on the lives of those around you. But the case I would make to you is that the reality of that, that we are responsible and we do have the opportunity and ability and even the responsibility to make choices with our will and that there are consequences to our choices. But I would say to you that that reality is not opposed to the, God, the sovereignty of God. That reality is true because of the sovereignty of God. Who gave us the ability to make choices? Who gave us and designed us in such a way that we could make decisions that have a certain amount of determination on our life? God chose to do that. Therefore, our ability to make choices and determine things is sourced in, begins in God's sovereignty, in God's rule, in what God designed for our, uh, our lives and for all of creation. So, a few verses that point to this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, says that the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. What does that mean? It means you are going to determine certain things about your life. If you decide to live within the influence and the scope of people who are filled with wisdom, the benefit of that, the consequence of that is you yourself will become a wiser person. However, if you determine and make the choice that you are going to be a companion of fools, that you are going to live within the influence of people who are making really, really, really foolish decisions, then you will suffer. That's a determination that you will make. And Proverbs goes on to say, disasters Disaster pursues sinners and good rewards the righteous. So again, if you make the choice to rebel against God and to sin against Him, disaster will pursue those choices that you make. But if you choose to live in a good way, in a right way, good will reward you. You have the ability to determine certain things about your life. James, in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 2 says, Some things you don't have because you aren't asking God. Which means that within God's sovereign purpose in creation, God has ordained that there are certain things we will only have if we pray and ask Him. And if we don't pray and ask Him, we won't have those things. Therefore, we can determine certain things about our life by being willing to spend time in prayer. Paul and Philemon, when he was in prison, he told Philemon, I am expecting and hoping that I will be released. He said, go ahead and prepare a room for me because I'm hoping I'm going to come and be with you soon. And that hope is through your prayers. So Paul's expectation was God is going to free me and I'm going to come and stay with you. And that freedom is going to come because you pray. So, we need to affirm we do have the ability to determine certain things about our lives. But I said it's a limited determination. And the reason I said that is because just as our 
ability to make choices begins and is sourced in the sovereignty of God, it also ends in the sovereignty of God. In your notes, the decisions of men occur within the sovereignty of God, not outside of it. And I, I want to give credit there to author Sam Knowles, who gave me that line this week when we were talking on the phone. The decision of men occur within the sovereignty of God, not outside of it. What does that mean? It means this, church, our ability to determine our lives is limited, it's not supreme. Our choice is not the final determining factor on how anything goes. And I'm just going to say, the people of God should rejoice over that. That our lives will not ultimately be determined by the choices we make. The determining factor, the final factor of how things will go in our lives and in any aspect of it, is the sovereignty of God. James would say in the New Testament, you and I should think this way. I'm going to go there and I'm going to do that if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, then I'm going to make my decisions and do these things. If the Lord doesn't will, then it won't happen. Some verses that point to that. Proverbs 16, 9. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. You and I have the responsibility to pray and plan and prepare and make certain decisions, but the ultimate deciding factor is how the Lord determines our steps should be ordered. How the Lord determines our life should go. Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. In other words, there are some things you may not have unless you ask. There are some things you will have regardless of whether you ask. Because God has purposed them for you. I always think about Jonah in that verse. God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Jonah said, no thanks. And he got on a boat and he went the complete opposite direction of where God told him to go. But God had purposed for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And no matter what Jonah did, he was going to Nineveh. God was going to fulfill that purpose. A person's heart plans his way. The Lord determines his steps. Probably the greatest example next to Jesus and one that points to Jesus is Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is his father's favorite son. The problem with that is Joseph knew it. And he took every opportunity to remind his brothers, I'm dad's favorite. His brothers, not good guys. And they decided to handle this not by just messing with him, messing with his stuff, but killing him. As it turned out, they didn't kill him, but they sold him to slavery. And for the next decades of his life, Joseph suffered in prison, suffering, being wrongly accused in multiple different ways, and suffering because of the actions of his brothers, not because of anything he had done. 
Yet Joseph ends up in Egypt, the second most powerful man in the land. And one day, his brothers appear before him. And Joseph has the power to do to them whatever he wants. I imagine there were some times when Joseph was sitting in that prison cell that he pictured that day and what he would do if he had the chance. And then he had the chance. He could have killed them all. But this is what Joseph said to them. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant with the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. What? Church, that's our faith. Grasp it. Don't run from it. These men plotted evil against their brother. Evil that did not originate from God. They sold him into slavery. Years later, he had the chance to crush them. And instead, instead he ministered to them. He forgave them and he said, don't be mad with yourself. Don't be mad at yourselves for what you've done. Why should you not be mad at yourselves for what you've done? Because it actually wasn't you that did it. God sent me here. And He sent me here to save you. He sent me ahead of you through what you did to me. He sent me ahead of you so that you would be saved. That is a picture pointing to Jesus. Later on when Joseph, when their dad died, those brothers assumed, well now he really will kill us. And then he said to them again, I'm not going to kill you. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. So church, were these men robots? No. Were they puppets? No. They planned evil and they were responsible for what they had done. But God exerted His supremacy in and over their choices. And He exerted His supremacy so that His plans and His attention, His intentions would bring about the desired result that He had, which was the salvation of Israel. It is God's pleasure to do what He wills, regardless of what we have determined. And sometimes He is using decisions that we make that are in line with His will, and sometimes He uses decisions we make that are outside of His will. And if that blows your mind, it is a reminder that He is infinite and we are not. But you and I cannot relate to God and assume that God is like us. The reality and the fact that we can't understand and grasp how the responsibility of man exists within the sovereignty of God doesn't mean that the responsibility of man doesn't exist there. It just means that we can't understand it and explain it all. So we point at it and we believe it. And one day, what we are looking through now, a cloudy glass will be clear. And we will have the opportunity to understand more fully 
But what God is pleased to do, He does, and no one can constrain Him. He is not restricted by evil in the world, and He is not restricted by our responsibility or our choices or our decisions. So church, I'd ask you, I did last week, I said, what kind of Redeemer do you want? Do you want a Redeemer that doesn't know anything about you, or do you want a Redeemer that knows everything about you? So that there's no skeleton that can be brought out of the closet that he would be surprised by. Today I present to you this question, what kind of life do you want to live? What do you want to determine the outcome of your life? The outcome of your marriage? The outcome of your parenting? The outcome of your efforts at work? The outcome of your relationships? Do you, do you really want to live a life where everything is determined by what you do? By your choices and your plans and your ability to make every right decision in everything that you face? I present to you that if, if, if that is in us, it is simply pride. That we want to be able to determine the course of our life. And at some point, we want to be able to get to a place and say, like Nebuchadnezzar did, I did that. We don't want that life. The life we want is the one in which our choices while determining factors about our life and while bringing consequences, that those choices are under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. And His control over our lives is the ultimate deciding factor. And when He takes the things we've done that were right, and when He takes all of our mess-ups and our failures and He works them together for good, then we will point at our lives and say, God did that. Not me. God did that. Charles Spurgeon once said that men want God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to create worlds and fashion stars. They will allow Him to give blessings and answer prayers. They will even allow Him to sustain the the sun and the moon and the waves of the ocean, but they turn a deaf ear when someone says to them that God is on His throne and He has a right to do whatever He wills with His creatures without consulting them. So here is the rest of that from Spurgeon that's in your notes. There is no attribute more comforting to His children than that of God's sovereignty that under the most adverse of circumstances, in the most severe trials, that those children believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions and that sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of the kingship of God over all the works of His hands. I go back to the psalm. 135 that Eric read, and this is where I'll end. I want you to look in these six verses. And what I want you to look for is the mixture of the declaration of God's sovereignty with the praise of His people. Hallelujah! 
Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, you servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord and in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is delightful. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as His treasured possession. For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. The Lord is good. Church, it is a comfort to His people that He is sovereign. Because He is good. And church, He is sovereign. He has chosen Jacob and Israel from all the nations. He does whatever He pleases. And what is the result for His people? Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, you servants of the Lord. Truly understanding sovereignty brings out of the people of God the praise of God. I want to ask the worship team if they'll come. This morning, as we sing together again, and we're going to have some prayer partners as we always do over here on my left. Here's what I, here's what I prayed for this morning. Here's what I asked God for. One, that we could point to His sovereignty, that we could have that moment where our minds are lifted high. We gain more understanding of God, but that that understanding would bring to us comfort. I think it was Heather prayed this morning in the prayer room. And part of her prayer, she was saying, God, what, what will it benefit us to believe You're sovereign if we don't also believe that You're good? My prayer this morning has been that as we point to the sovereignty of God, that He would convict us where we're still trying to control everything. Or where we're trying to control certain aspects of our lives. Where we're not trusting Him. Where we're not willing to just relinquish that control to Him and say, God, You do it. I've made my plans. I've done all that I know to do. And God, I'm wearing myself out with worry and with labor. God, You're sovereign. You are good. Work all this to the counsel of your will. If you know this morning where that is in your life, I ask you to spend this time pondering that and giving that to Him in prayer. It's also my hope this morning that He would bring comfort to our hearts. That no matter what has happened or what is happening, that He is sovereign and He is good. And He is working all things. If we're in the middle of doing exactly what He wants, or if we're in the middle of making a really big error, He's sovereign. That thing that tortures our minds, that we're always having to come back to over and over that happened to us, it didn't originate in Him. But He is using it for our good. Praise Him for Father, I ask this morning that the reality of Your sovereignty, that we as Your people would be able to affirm it, that You do whatever pleases You. But what pleases You, God, is good. 
that we would affirm that and we would praise you for your sovereignty. And God, that you would convict us of any place in our lives or just how in our entire life we're trying to live in such a way that we're the determining factor of everything. God, let us, let us admit to you that you have control and let us relinquish it so that there is peace in our lives. Not peace to be apathetic, but peace to walk as people of wisdom and make decisions knowing that you will work all things for our good. God, I pray this morning that where we have been hurt, where we have been misunderstood, where we have been accused and where we have suffered, that we would not shake our fist at You because of that. But God, we would trust this morning that You love us, You know what is best, and You are using those things to bring about good. And we would worship You for that. Father, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know You, would You let today be the day that they cry out to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and be saved. He was murdered on a cross by lawless men. But God, it happened according to your definitive plan that we might be saved. Would you today, God, open our eyes to salvation. That we would come to know you and be baptized in proclamation. of The change that you have made in our hearts. If there's anything I can do for you this morning before you leave in talking with you about your relationship with Jesus, that would be my honor. Just let me know. Let us pray and let us worship with what God has laid on our hearts. Amen.